Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 10. We're going to take up the first 12 verses of Mark, Jesus' teaching concerning divorce. This is the first teaching in Mark that is outside of Capernaum. We'll talk about where Jesus probably has gone since he left Capernaum. We're going to look at a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, also verses 1 through 12. Luke and John have nothing about this. And each of these passages has something that the other passage does not have. So I'm going to take Mark and Matthew in parallel as we go through. Starting with Mark 10 verse 1. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again as he usually did. He began teaching them once more. Now Matthew 19 verses 1 through 2 is parallel and it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the borders of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him there, and he healed them. Now, we need to see where Jesus is now. He's just in the last chapter in Mark 9, he's just given teaching on you need to be as a little child to be a leader in the kingdom of heaven. You don't need to be jealous of other people who are casting out demons in Jesus' name, and that sort of teaching. And then all of a sudden it jumps here in Mark 10, he set out from there. Well, what happened between the setting out from Capernaum to the time he ends up to where he is, which Matthew tells us is the region of Judea across the Jordan, otherwise known as Perea. The scripture doesn't say Perea, but we know that from the map, that's what it is. Perea is that district east of the Jordan River, reaching down from north of the Sea of Galilee all the way down, down to the Dead Sea, roughly. And so when, Je- when Jesus went across the Jordan, east of the Jordan, he's in Perea. And that's where he is here. Judea across the Jordan is what Mark calls it and what Matthew calls it. So what happened between Capernaum and Perea? Well, if you'll look at Robertson's Harmony, you'll see a lot happened. And people disagree on how to harmonize the Gospels, and they disagree on when Jesus went here and how long he went and so forth. But roughly... He went through Samaria, down in Jerusalem, got into a bunch of controversy with the Pharisees as he started teaching down there, and the opposition to him got worse and worse. He retreated from Jerusalem and went across to Perea. This is what I think the NIV study Bible takes it. And then because of certain language, Robertson takes him from Perea back up to Samaria, back up to Galilee for a brief visit, and then back down to Perea again. I don't know if Robertson's right or not. But everybody seems to agree that's where Jesus is now, and there's a lot of stuff that we're skipping. We're going to take up when we get to Luke and John. Now let's look at some details that Matthew 19 verses 1 and 2 add, or a detail. It says, great multitudes followed him. Mark just has multitudes. So a multitude by itself is a lot of people. A great multitude is a whole heap of people. He's still creating much excitement, much messianic excitement, and you notice he's healing them. Mark says he taught them, and Matthew says he healed them. Those are the two great activities that Jesus did in his ministry, teaching and healing. And I refuse to set one up above another like certain cessationists I know. Now, this, unless Robertson is right that Jesus went back up to Galilee, this is the last time Jesus is in Capernaum. And Adam Clark, or excuse me, Jameson Fawcett and Brown have an interesting quote about this. Quote, This marks a very solemn period in our Lord's ministry. So slightly is it touched here, and in the corresponding passage of Mark, he's talking about in Matthew and in Mark, that few readers probably noted as the 
capital letter Redeemers, capital farewell to capital Galilee. Redeemers farewell to Galilee, which, however, it was. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown also quote Luke 9.51 as saying the same thing, but Robertson doesn't mention this as a parallel passage. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, See on the sublime statement of Luke 9, verse 51, which relates to the same transition stage in the progress of our Lord's work. Well, what does Luke 9.51 say? When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. Well, I don't know if that's part of the parallel or not, but the point is, he's leaving Capernaum. If he ever came back, it was only for a short time. Now, these multitude of crowds that were following him there, they might have had different motives. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown list four. Maybe some came to be instructed. Some came to be healed. Those are the two main reasons, teaching and healing. Some may have come through curiosity without wanting to commit themselves. And some may have come in order to catch him up, to ensnare him, to turn him over to the Pharisees and to the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Going on to Mark 10, verse 2, and we will read just verse 2. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Let's read verse 3, too. He replied to them, what did Moses command you? Now, notice the Holman Christian Bible study Bible in Verse 2 says they came to test him. The old King James has to tempt him. And that's the, the, so much confusion because of that word. The Greek word is the same word. To test somebody is to put somebody in a hard place in order to, usually it means, in order to, to strengthen him, to encourage him, to make him better. To tempt means to put somebody in a hard place to hurt him, to destroy him. So actually, the, in the strict definition of those words, and I... And I tell you in English, I think the words are fuzzy. In the strict definition, the King James is actually better. They were tempting him. They were trying to destroy him. But the Holman Christian Bible uses the word test not in the sense of an algebra teacher gives a test to make his student stronger in algebra, but to test him in the sense of to try him, to tempt him, to make him be destroyed. So they were laying a trap for him. We'll look at that trap in just a minute. That's why they asked the question about divorcing your wife, which you think, what's that got to do with anything? And so they replied, so Jesus replied, what did Moses command you? So Jesus is going to get right into this big raging controversy that's going on right now between the schools of Hillel and Shammai in the school of the Pharisees. There was a division amongst them. Now we notice in Matthew 19, verse 3, when the Pharisees came tempting him, they said, quote, Is it lawful for a man to put his wife, put away his wife for every cause? Now that little phrase for every cause is not in Mark, and it's extremely important because this illustrates the division that was between the school of Hillel and Shammai. All right, let's talk we're gonna to have to talk about that division, and in order to do that, we need to go back to the Old Testament to Moses. Remember, Jesus said, what did Moses say? Well, what did Moses say? Well, that's in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it now. Moses says this, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, the NIV says indecent, finds something indecent or improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, 
and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must, you must not bring guilt on the land your Lord God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, basically, what was going on between Hillel and Shammai is this. They were trying to interpret Moses here. Moses said that you can send your wife away if you find something improper or something indecent in her. The school of Hillel, the liberal school, says something indecent and something improper is any old thing. For every cause, in Matthew 19.3, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? The Pharisees asked. They were going straight to the nub of the controversy. Because the Hillel school said it was okay to send a woman away for every cause. Did she burn the toast? Did the husband find a young, uh, two young 20-year-old babes? Did he trade his 40-year-old wife in for two 20s because his wife wasn't quite as pretty as she was? Something stupid like that. Did she burn the toast? Did she talk too much? Did she gossip too much? That was the Hillel school. Any cause, the liberal school, you can put away a wife for any school any cause. The conservative school, Shammai, said that the something indecent must be sexual immorality. Well, as we'll see here, Jesus takes the side of Shammai. He says you can only put somebody away for sexual immorality, but there's other causes you can't. Now, the object of the question here, the Pharisees asking Jesus this, was to put him in a trap. If Jesus took the side of Hillel and said that, oh yeah, a man can divorce a wife for any old reason, that would, of course, make the opposing school of Shammai angry, but also make all the women angry with him because they didn't like being put away because they weren't quite as pretty as that young babe that came into the house or because she didn't quite cook his food exactly the way he wanted. So that, was, that would be the problem if he took the side of Hillel. But if he took the side of Shammai, he would make the followers of Hillel angry, obviously, because they were opposed to Shammai. And then all the men would be angry with him because they couldn't put their wives away as easy as they wanted to, to find some cute little honey to replace their nagging wife. Well, Jesus took the side of Shammai. He didn't care. But what we'll see what he did is instead of going back to Moses, he went all the way back to the beginning and said, this is what Moses had to do because of the hardness of your heart, but this is what God originally said about marriage from the very beginning, and this is the way it would be. Now, notice that Jesus from the very beginning is not only taking the side of the school of Shammai, at first it sounds like he's even more conservative than the school of Shammai, saying that for no reason, not even for sexual immorality, can you divorce a wife. The school of Shammai said, yeah, you can divorce for sexual immorality. Well, later on in Matthew, not in Mark, but in Matthew, I think it's in verse 5 down here, he says, um, except for fornication, yeah, it's not verse 5, it's verse 9, I'm sorry, except for fornication, you can't put away, but for fornication, you can. If she commits adultery, you can. Now, that was one way that the Pharisees were trying to tempt Jesus or test him, was to get him half the Pharisees mad at him, but also Herod Antipas. Remember, he's in Perea, and Herod Antipas is the governing authority over Perea, and Herod Antipas committed adultery when he got Herodias, his half-brother Herod Philip II, Herod, Philip II, Herod Antipas I, excuse me, Herod Philip I, his wife Herodias, when he talked Herodias into leaving his half-brother and marrying him, that was adultery. And John the Baptist pointed that out to Herod, and Herod eventually killed him. You know the story. So Jesus could be getting himself in trouble here. So the Pharisees, once again, trying to get him killed. So now we go to Jesus' response. We'll go to Mark 10, verse 4. They, the Pharisees, said, this is in response to the question, what did Moses command you? Verse 4, they, the Pharisees, said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. 
In other words, they're saying, see there, Moses allowed easy divorce. Now, they didn't get into the question of what the grounds of the divorce, how easy the divorce should be, but they just quoted Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, basically, without getting into the controversy. Verse 5, but Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Verse 7, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. So he basically takes an opposing tack of the Pharisees. He said, well, Moses permitted divorce. God does not permit divorce. The reason Moses permitted divorce was because of the hardness of your hearts. Again, a little slam at the Pharisees, showing how the, how the Pharisees were opposed to God. And this illustrates a key point here. Just because you regulate something doesn't mean you approve of it. I mean, after all, Moses regulated polygamy. God didn't sanction polygamy at the very beginning, as this verse plainly shows. Moses had to regulate slavery. That doesn't mean God approves slavery. How about this? Uh, Governments today regulate prostitution. Does that mean they approve of prostitution? I don't think so. They regulate drinking, but that doesn't mean they approve of the government approves of drunkenness. Because of the hardness of people's hearts, there's only so much law systems can do. The law can protect the innocent as much as possible, but it's not going to create a reformation of morals. And it's only going to keep society together hanging by a thread. It's not going to give us a really nice, just society. That takes a transformation of culture in people's hearts. All right, let's look at a minor problem here. When Jesus quotes Moses, he's quoting Genesis 2.24 that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Now, when we read in the passage of Matthew, not Mark, we read that Jesus says this, Have you not read that he which made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother? Mark doesn't have that God said, For this cause shall a man leave his mother and father. Well, who said it? We go back to Genesis 2, verse verses 23 and 24, and I'll read it in the Holman Christian Study Bible. And the man said, that's Adam, now here's where a quotation will be, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, let's say that there's not a quotation mark put here in verse 24. That means Adam is still speaking. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Well, you know, there's no quotations in the original in the original manuscripts, I believe there should be a quote right there, a closed quote right there. Adam's finished talking now. She, he says, this one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. Close quote. And then Moses picks up in verse 24 and says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother. And Moses, of course, is speaking for God. And so when Jesus says, God said in Matthew 19:5, and say, and God said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, he's quoting Moses, who was quoting God which shows that Jesus believed that Moses was speaking from God, by the way, for all you people who are worried about the Bible being inerrant. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. Moses said that. God said that. John Gill says even if you put the quotation at the end of verse 24 in Genesis 2 and make Adam say that, this is why a man leaves his father and mother, well, then Adam is speaking under divine revelation. And so when Jesus said that God said it, he was saying that God said it through Adam. Well, that's a possible way to reconcile it. I think it's easier just to do it the way I just said make Moses say it by putting the quote, close quote, at the end of verse 23 and starting up again at 24 with Moses speaking, which is God speaking. Now, Adam Clark's got a great way 
of describing this one flesh relationship, quote, not only meaning that they should be considered as one body, but also as two souls in one body with a complete union of interest and an indissoluble partnership of life and fortune, comfort and support, desires and inclinations, joys and sorrows. In other words, it's not just a physical thing, it's a life thing. Now, Mark chapter 10, verse 9 says, What therefore God hath joined asunder, let not man, joined together, excuse me, let not man put asunder that old line that's said in traditional weddings. Here's an example of who must not dissolve marriages for the wrong reasons. The husband must not do it. The government must not do it. And Moses himself must not do it. And that's who Jesus was really talking about, Moses. He's saying, look, if you guys didn't have such a hard heart, you wouldn't have to have all these easy divorces. If people would act morally, there wouldn't be a need for the law, for the lenient law. Let's take a brief look at how the hardness of the Israelites' heart forced Moses to legislate the way he did. Back then, if a man got unhappy with his wife, what would he do? Well, he could do several things. One, he could just take a young, a young, any kind of a mistress into the home and let the poor wife be in her own home supplanted by a mistress. That would be horrible for the woman. Or he could just kick her out of the house, in which case she's wandering around, not under the protection of anybody. People will look at her, well, you're, you're, what are you, a prostitute? What are you, just, did you run away from your husband? Just exactly what is your status? I can't, and then if the woman wanted to get married again, she couldn't do it, because what man's going to marry somebody who's, might be a prostitute, might just be somebody that's run out on her husband for no reason. She, she needed legal proof that she was a single woman again and could get remarried. That's why Moses forced them to write a bill of certificate. He was not saying divorce is a good thing. He's saying, no, you people are so hard-hearted that I've got to protect the women in this situation. Well, let's look at the idea of the government. What happens when the government, as is usual these days, allows divorce for less than scriptural reasons? What happens then? Well, in my humble opinion, that divorce, somebody who gets a divorce, a non-Christian who gets a divorce like that, a governmental divorce rather than a scriptural divorce, that governmental divorce is valid as far as non-believers go. But they're not valid for the believer because our standards are higher. Matthew 19.11 says this, But he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given, the saying that you're not supposed to put your wife away except for adultery. Not everybody can receive that. Well, Christians can receive it. We have the Holy Spirit. So if you're in a situation where you feel like putting your wife away when she hasn't committed adultery, your husband, don't do it, because your standards are higher. However, if you've got a situation where, let's say, a non-Christian divorced somebody, and for less than adulterous reasons, and then wants to marry a Christian. Well, the divorce was valid, given by the state. They weren't a Christian then. They weren't under the New Covenant law. I'd say let them go ahead and remarry. And by the way, this issue of marriage and divorce is a real bucket of thorns. I'm telling you, you can go on forever and ever coming up with hypotheticals. How would you answer this? And I'll tell you, sometimes... You know, what, what makes it hard? Usually it's not a problem because usually people who are jerks end up committing adultery. They just do. And so they, they, you've got your scriptural grounds and then people can get divorced. And by the way, it's only allowed. It's not commanded. Just because somebody commits adultery, there can be forgiveness and reconciliation and the marriage can be put back together. That's happened. But usually when some idiot, some member of the marriage is acting horribly, they usually commit adultery. So they're, they're your grounds. 
And if it's not adultery, sexual immorality. I knew a situation where a guy was not committing adultery, Christian guy, but he was watching pornography constantly and refused to stop. He even, sh- even showed up in front of the children. She divorced him. She had every reason to, she had grounds because it's sexual immorality, not just adultery. The word is pornea means sexual immorality. So usually it's not going to be a problem, but sometimes they're hard cases, and hard cases make bad law, as the old legal saying goes. Join together means yoke together. If you recall the old agricultural metaphor that meant agricultural picture of two oxen pulling together, if they're equally yoked, they pull evenly, the work is spread between them, one does not get tired, the other does not work against the other one, they, they work in tandem, and as a result, their plowing is straight and smooth. Well, that's what it means for a husband and wife to be equally yoked, working together, all right, we need to point out here that in Matthew 19:9, I've already mentioned it, I'll mention it again, that Jesus makes an exception for when you can't put your wife away, and that's for fornication. Now, of course, the, I'm assuming that's the fornication on the part of the wife. An interesting question arises, what happens if it's the fornication or the spiritual adultery? King James has fornication. That, that's not precise. Sexual immorality, Home and Christian Study Bible has. What happens if it's the husband that commits sexual immorality and then... The marriage is messed up, and so then the husband says, okay, I can divorce you. Well, I don't know. The Scripture doesn't say. I would say from if I, if, if I was a judge in a court of law, I wouldn't want somebody to profit from their own sin. But I don't know. That's another one of those hard questions. And there's one other thing here, too. There's three cases under the Mosaic Law, which Jesus says under the divine law, adultery occurs. That's if, if the man puts the wife away and the wife marries another. Then the put-away wife commits adultery. And then if the put-away wife marries another, the second husband that marries the put-away wife, he commits adultery. And there's a third case which is very interesting. The third case is when the wife puts away her husband for an unscriptural reason, a non-sexual immorality reason. This is in Mark Chapter 12, verse 12. And if she herself shall put away her husband and marry another, she commits adultery. So that's the third person that can be caught in adultery under the lax Mosaic law. The wife who puts her husband away. Now what makes this interesting is, is the law doesn't have provisions for wives to sue their husbands. Now John Gill says we answer that because by saying the Jews started taking on the practice of the Gentiles and the Gentiles allowed women to divorce their husbands. I think the best solution and this is from my memory. I read it somewhere a long time ago, and I can't find the quote. But Rastus Rushdoony, the Dominion Reconstructionist, who is the expert on Jewish law and who is read by Dallas Seminary students when they want to understand the Old Testament law, even though Dallas Seminary is far, far away from Dominion theology, Reconstructionist theology. Rastus Rushdoony says that the, exa- the, the, that the Mosaic law was a code that, gave examples and then you had and it gave case law examples and then the judges had to interpret that and and make logical inferences from that and the logical inference is if the man commits adultery so does the woman the woman if the if the man can sue for adultery so can the woman and so it was understood that a woman could sue for divorce and i think rush dooney's probably right about that and even even if he's not verse 12 here tells me that, hey, that's probably the way we ought to interpret Moses, because Jesus said if she herself shall put away her husband, so the woman had the right to sue for divorce. Of course, 
Jesus is saying, just like the man, she doesn't have the right to sue for divorce because, say, the man well, gives a wolf whistle to another woman or something, something stupid, something less than sexual immorality. She can't put him away. Lots of interesting stuff. Lots of interesting stuff in these two chapters. Now, let's see how the disciples react against this, this difficult teaching. Their reaction is only recorded in Matthew chapter 19, going from verse 9 to, through 12. So, I'm just going to read it out of Matthew now. His disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. <laughs> so, the disciples' attitude was just like the current-day Pharisees' attitude in Jesus' time. That's too hard. I want to be able to divorce my wife if I need to. What if she doesn't please me anymore? They were probably thinking marriage for an entire lifetime was just too hard. I remember when I was about to get married, that thought crossed my mind several times. I said, for my whole life? In fact, I got cold feet about it and almost backed out of a getting married. I've been happily married for, 30, I forgot how many years. Don't tell my wife. It's been a long time. Since 1975, long, long time, perfectly happy. And what if I'd have backed out because I thought, oh, I can't make it for a whole lifetime. No, Christians need to have this attitude. When you get married, it's forever. Till death do you part. Not till I get tired of you. I want somebody else. You bore me now. I want to find a sweet young honey. Go running off with her. Uh-uh. That's not the way it works. Here's a good quote from Adam Clark. There are difficulties and trials in all states, but let marriage and celibacy be weighed fairly, and I am persuaded the former will be found to have fewer than the latter. In other words, marriage has got less trials than celibacy does, and that's the truth, especially for men. Have you ever seen single man? That is the definition of unhappiness, a single man. A single woman, you know, they get a cat, they fix up their apartment, they're okay. But a man, oh my gosh, he's miserable. Matthew 19, verses 11 through 12. But he, Jesus, told them, the disciples, Not everyone can accept the same, but only those it has been given to. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Now, this is a little hard to interpret. But this is the way it goes, I think. Jesus gives two cases from nature. Some people are born with birth defects and they and their tool is not working. And some people have their tool removed, made by men. Tool, they were made eunuchs by men. They have their tool removed because, for example, they're working in the emperor's harem. Now, that's examples from life that the disciples would know about. And then he switches to an application here. There are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Of course, nobody does that in, in the real world. But what he's talking about now is not someone who physically castrates himself, but somebody who does not get married for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he's referring to the disciples because he knows they're about to receive all kinds of persecution. They're not going to be in any shape to settle down and get married and live a normal married life. And so he's saying, you think it's hard to get married for a long time? Disciples, I'm telling you, it's going to be hard for you to get married for a short time, much less a long time. Now, Peter was already married. It's interesting. Think about the other disciples. I'm not aware that they got married. Don't think they did. Peter was already married. Paul, of course, he was not in this group here, but the apostle Paul it was married at one time, they say. I think it's because you had to be married to be in the Sanhedrin, and Paul was in the Sanhedrin. But she doesn't show up on the, on the trips. I presume that his wife just said, to heck with you, Paul. I'm out of here. I don't know. But it's real hard. It was real hard. What, what does it say? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 7, 26. 
Paul says this, Therefore I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. In other words, single. Because of the present distress, the persecution that the Jews were going after the Christians before AD 70 when the Jewish kingdom was destroyed and when the church could therefore get a foothold in the world and get settled down so people could get married in a normal manner. Now this is this idea of being married forever, excuse me, this idea of being a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, let anyone accept this who can. In other words, it's hard. It's hard to not get married. Let anyone accept this who can. Jesus is assuming it's hard to be single for the kingdom of heaven. Why is it hard? Because celibacy is not natural. Didn't God say it is good for man not to be alone? And just look at the single people you know, how miserable they are. So, so Jesus is saying, uh, yeah, I know it's going to be hard, guys, but the kingdom of heaven is more important than marriage. There are lots of missionaries who went out who didn't get married for that very reason. On the other hand, there are lots of missionaries who did go out with their wives, and their wives died on the mission fields. Well, there's lots of those back in the 19th century. So marriage and mission work, that's a tough combination. Jesus said it. Now, when he says to be a eunuch for the kingdom of God, to be single for the kingdom of God, Roman Catholics have taken that and said, see there, you're more pure and you're more holy when you're single, as John Gill accuses them of, and I believe that's what they say. Well, after this sodomy scandal in the Roman Catholic Church that's been going on year after year after year, this is 2019 I'm speaking now, it's gone on year after year, the Pope has been accused of covering it up, cardinals have been accused of covering it up, it's just been the worst scandal. I think marriage would probably be a good idea unless you can't get married because of the present distress. And these disciples were about to have a present distress. And that ends Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. Of course, we've just touched the surface of it. There's a lot you can be said about it. I will say this as an application. If you're a Christian, don't get divorced for any reason except for sexual immorality. And Paul added another reason. If you have an unbelieving wife who leaves, well, then get you can get divorced then, but otherwise, don't do it. Don't do it. You'll be a lot happier. All right, I'm finished with Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Jesus is teaching on divorce. We'll take it up with verse 13 and Mark 10 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.